Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 498 for November 20th, 2019. On today's show, we step into the Wayback Machine for a rebroadcast of my 2009 interview with pianist Steve Kuhn. This show is supported by its members without whom the jazz session would not be possible. I'm trying very hard to make this show and my other podcast, A Brief Chat, into my living. And you can help me do that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. There are now two levels, 5 and $10 per month. Both come with cool bonus material. I want to send a big shout out to Mark Redman, who became a member this past week. Thanks so much, Mark. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join and be like Mark. Back in 2009, the jazz session was still pretty young. It had been going for uh, just a couple years at that point. And I was just beginning to kind of stretch out even further and go find people as opposed to waiting for them to either come to Rochester, New York, where I lived, or to agree to do a phone interview. This was one of the earliest examples of that. And it was one of the first times I was really kind of awestruck to find myself in a situation because I went to find Steve Kuhn at his home, which I think was somewhere in the Hudson Valley, maybe. I don't exactly remember, but I think it was somewhere in the Hudson Valley of of New York State. And I just remember sitting at his kitchen table and he poured me a glass of water from one of those old, uh, if you're my age, like in your 40s, you probably remember these, a, a Tupperware pitcher, but it it wasn't it wasn't just a pitcher. It wasn't one of the Tupperware pitchers where like there's a round top that sits down inside it and you can take that off and you can like turn it around so that it blocks the ice or whatever, you know? It wasn't one of those. It was like a an oval-shaped pitcher, kind of thin and long, and then, you know, maybe a foot or a foot and a half high, and it had like a little flip-top area, that a little small round flip-top thing that you could open so you could pour out of it. And I just remember thinking, this guy who's pouring me water out of this Tupperware container, he used to play with John Coltrane. And I'm at his kitchen table. And it really just blew my mind. It was very hard, as you can imagine. It was it, it's it's hard to maintain a sense of perspective at a time like that. So we'll see how well I did in this interview. But uh, in any case, I, I for various scheduling reasons, I was unable to get a, a new show for you this week. It'll be back to the regular new show schedule next week. But this is a cool show, and I just remember how meaningful it was to me at the time and still remains to this day. And it's from 10 years ago, so my guess is there are many recent jazz session uh, converts who may not have heard a lot of the episodes from way back in the in the dim mists of time. Uh, I'm quite sure, having listened just to the beginning of it, that there are going to be some sound quality issues. It won't be as good as you're used to because, you know, it was 10 years ago and I didn't exactly know what I was doing. But anyway, I think you're going to dig it. Let's go right now, all the way back to August 28th, 2009, for episode 76 of The Jazz Session and Steve Kuhn. And I'm leaving in the intro and everything so you can hear how the show sounded 10 years ago. A lot of things have changed. Here we go.
Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is pianist Steve Kuhn. From his new album, Mostly Coltrane, this is Like Sunny. My guest is pianist and composer Steve Kuhn. His new album for ECM Records is called Mostly Coltrane, and uh, it's a real pleasure for me to talk to you. Thank you for Oh, it's my show. pleasure, Jason. Thank you very much. Now, almost exactly 60 years ago, you spent eight weeks uh, in the band of John Coltrane at the Jazz Gallery, and it's, uh, it's incredible that all this time later, this music, his music, and uh, I guess, I'm guessing more than just the music, has stayed with you and had such an impact on you. Can you talk about why that was? It was 50 years ago. Uh, 50, I'm sorry, 50, that's right. (laughs) Added a decade. Please, these days are too precious to to go by a decade like that. (laughs) I can't afford that. Anyway. (laughs) Now, what was the question? Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I almost feel like I should erase. That'll be the Nixon tapes right there that no one ever hears me saying that it was in the 1940s. Uh, Yeah, so can you talk about why uh, Coltrane's music had such an impact on you and your time with him? I had been a, f- a big fan of his uh, <clears throat> in when I first heard his music, which uh, I guess was the, the beginning, the Miles Davis quintets, the early quintets. And I heard him, and uh, even though there was his sound was a little rough, and there was some squeaks coming out of the reeds, and all, just the essence of what he was doing was to me so different and cutting edge. But it resonated very deeply for whatever the reason. I mean, it was an 
a logical extension from the bebop music that I grew up listening to and loving as much as I did. From that point on, and I would I just followed him through every recording that came out with Miles's group, as well as he started recording on his own. So uh, I knew a lot of his music, and was a big big fan, and thought that he, probably he and Sonny Rollins were the two major saxophone players of that era, certainly, and as it turns out, they were. And Stan Getz also, not to that extent, but almost. But John was uh, definitely, uh, he uh, resonated the most for me of all those of all those saxophone players. So uh, being a big fan and then, uh, I mean, basically when I came to New York in 1959, and I fortunately was working with Kenny Dorham at the time and heard that uh, John was leaving Miles and wanted, was putting trying to put a quartet together. And, I mean, I've told the story a lot, but it's... Uh, Basically, I'm shy, so I would. But I, I got his phone number somewhere and called him, and I said, "I know you don't know who I am. I'm currently the pianist with Kenny Dorm's group. I just came to New York, uh, and it would be great if we could maybe someday meet and just sit down and talk about music, maybe play a little together or something. And probably a week or two later, I get a phone call. I was staying at a hotel in Mid- Midtown Manhattan called the Bryant Hotel. That's where I was living in those days. I had just come to New York. And uh, he said he would rent a studio in the na- my neighborhood, and would I, you know, join him? Just come, and we could. And so exactly, that's what happened. We, the studio was the size of a postage stamp, really. It was very small. It had an upright piano, <clears throat> a couple of chairs, and we uh, sat, talked, played a little bit, talked about the music, and uh, for a couple of hours, and that was it. He he went. Home. I went back to the hotel and with nothing in mind. I mean, he didn't say anything to me, yay or yes or no. Maybe a week or two, two went by again, and he called and asked me if I would come out to his house. He lived in Hollis, Queens, which is, uh, and he was married at the time to uh, Nita or Naima, as, and they had a, a daughter, I believe. I took the subway out there, and essentially we did the same thing. Just talked and played, and uh, uh, she cooked dinner for us, and then he drove me back into Manhattan to the hotel. Again, there was no commitment of any kind, uh, negative, positive, anything. And then maybe another week or ten days, two weeks passed, and the phone rang in the hotel room and said, Steve, this is John, uh, would $135 a week be okay to start? That's the way he presented it, and of course I was... Over the moon, I couldn't believe it. But of course, ironically, at that time, working with Kenny Dorm, I was making a hundred dollars a week. So even even that was was an upgrade. But um, so of course I said yes. And then he had this engagement at the Jazz Gallery, which was a club on St. Mark's Place on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I think he was booked there for originally for two to four weeks. I don't remember. And he was held over. Kept being held over, and he worked there, I think, all told, for 26 weeks straight, which is unheard of to, to work in a club anywhere in the world for, for that long, unless you own the club and you just... Uh, but uh, 26 weeks, I was there maybe 8 to 10 weeks, and then he got McCoy Tyner joined the band. And as I found out after the fact, he originally wanted McCoy, and McCoy had a contract with the Jazz Tet, Art Farmer and Benny Goldson, and he couldn't leave at the time this engagement had started, so 
I was essentially just holding the chair down for him. But in those eight to ten weeks, it was an incredibly uh, intense experience for me musically and just working every night, six, well, six nights a week for those weeks, uh, something I'll always remember, just uh, the energy in the room that he evoked from the, with his solos. I mean, after his solos, people would literally get up out of their chairs and just as if it was a revival meeting, it just the, the reaction was incredible. Night after night after night after night, so it was it was a really uh, very special atmosphere to be or be involved. I'd never experienced that in my life before playing in a group like that. So it was uh, something I'll always remember. Just uh, he was a very humble man. He didn't say much. Uh, he just uh, completely devoted to the music. Completely. He he just. When he wasn't uh, sleeping or eating, he had the horn in his mouth. It just, uh, <clears throat> I had never experienced that kind of dedication before with anybody. <clears throat> a lot of musicians, you know, they're looking at the ladies and they're doing other substance abuse. And John was straight as a pin at that time. He was uh, no issues with substance abuse. That was all in his past. And the only thing he did like was uh, he had an addictive personality, obviously. But... Uh, to his sugar craving, I think. He, he uh, was very fond of life's, the butter rum lifesavers, that particular flavor. So he always, when you spoke with him, you could smell the butter rum. Uh, he just popped them one after another, and that was, I guess, his sugar fix, if you will. But uh, that was it, as far as anything. Uh, he was uh, just about all about the music, and uh, it was something, of course, I'll uh, remember the rest of my life. There's such a, a breadth of Coltrane's repertoire to choose from when putting together uh, an album of his music. How did you select uh, what was going to be on here, much of which was actually composed uh, years after the time that you were with Coltrane? That I can attribute to Joe Lovano because I really, frankly, was not familiar with those later songs. <clears throat> I was... Uh, when I w worked with him, we were playing the music from the uh, Giant Steps repertoire and things like impressions and stuff. He was sort of on the fence between very dense harmonic uh, situations in terms of the songs and also then impressions, which had one or two harmonies throughout the whole song. And uh, eventually he went in that direction, but at the time I was with him, he, he was just sort of playing both ends, sort of playing with both, both kinds. And uh, so I... Once I think once the band with McCoy and Elvin and Jimmy Garrison, <clears throat> once they broke up, I sort of, uh, I didn't follow it that closely. I know he was using two saxophones, Eric Dolphy at times, and Farrell Saunders, and two drummers at times, two bassists, I don't know. <clears throat> and the repertoire they were playing, I really was not familiar with. And uh, it didn't captivate me the way his earlier stuff had done in the t at the time I was with him as well. So Joe Lovano, every year at Birdland in New York City, we do a birthday, Coltrane birthday tribute in uh, the latter part of September, around John's birthday. This year we're there, September 23rd to 26th. And Joe brought in a lot of these songs from his later period, uh, none of which I was familiar, but at the same time, <clears throat> never having heard them played, I guess for me it was uh, just playing them the way I would play them or the way I 
thought they should be played and not. It just it was my interpretation of them, and apparently it's different than what the records were, and uh, which is fine. <clears throat> I wasn't. I wouldn't have tried to emulate anyway. Uh, I thank Joe for bringing in bringing in those songs, and Manfred Eicher, or Eicher um, would have preferred the whole album to be of his of Coltrane's later music, because that's Manfred's leaning in that direction. But some of the songs on the recording uh, are songs that I played with John, and there were two songs on the recording that he did not write, but we played The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, which is a standard movie theme, and... Uh, um, I want to talk, talk about you, which is Billy Eckstein. Uh, otherwise, they're they're all, uh, I guess, later Coltrane things, if I'm not mistaken. There was nothing. Was there anything on there? I can't. Uh, Central Park West is not. Yeah, well, I never. And like Sunny. Like, like Sunny, we played. Yeah. Yes, like Sunny, we played. But I think that was it. Everything else. So I stand corrected. It's just that like Sunny is the only original <clears throat> of John's that I played with him at that time. Uh, other than the two standards. And uh, there's two solo pieces on here which Manfred had requested. One, he said, he just said, just improvise, go and sit, sit and improvise a solo uh, piece by yourself. And I just call it With Gratitude, which is dedication to John, of course. And Trance, which is a composition of mine I'd written many years ago, but had recorded in a lot of different contexts, but never solo. So Manfred said, why don't you just try to play that solo? I did, and he liked both the, uh, the with gratitude and trance, so they were left on the CD. But uh, uh, Manfred sort of directed this whole thing, and uh, he's a great producer. He re he's incredibly talented in that area, and uh, the rest of the songs are later Coltrane songs, which I had, having played this annual Birdland birthday tribute to John for the last five or six years, so I was familiar with them. And, and so they weren't completely new to me, obviously. But I'd never heard his recordings of them at all. So to this day, I have no idea. But, but uh, that's how the, the repertoire came about. And it's through Joe Lovano, really, that uh, made me aware of these songs. Hey, it's Jason back in 2019 again. Let's take a quick break from this interview to talk about what we value. I think it's safe to say that if you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, you value improvised music and the people who make it. So do I. And I think it's really important that we save the voices of those people for posterity. Not just the music, but the ideas, the thoughts, the emotions, the histories behind this music that we love. This is the project I've been working on for a dozen years now, and I can only do it when people like you move from being listeners to being members. If you also value these stories and this archive of knowledge, I really need your help to keep it going for years to come. You can join today by becoming a member for 5 or $10 at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll instantly get access to all the bonus episodes that have already happened, and you'll get all the future bonus episodes, plus early access to every show and more. If you value what I do, let me know with your membership. Thanks. And now, back to 2009. 
One of my favorite uh, moments on this record is uh, the version of I Want to Talk About You, which uh, I first heard as John Coltrane played it, and I almost can't hear it without hearing his horn. And so mm-hmm. when it gets to the point where you would expect Coltrane to come in on this album, I almost feel like I'm getting a wink from you or, a, you know, don't don't assume you know exactly how this record is going to go because it doesn't have saxophone on it. And uh, right. I think that's a brilliant decision. Can you talk about how that came about? Well, I wanted to do a trio piece and uh, a ballad, and this was one of the ballads that we played we did I remember we did Naima at the time and you know I, can't, I really can't remember what else but the this was a standard ballad that we played from time to time during the time I was with him and uh, his recording of this song I know I had heard of course uh, back in the day but it's a song I've always liked and uh, it's a fairly simple simple song um, the actual harmonies uh, the uh, first the A A section, or the A section, is Misty. Errol Garner's Misty, harmonically speaking, which I was not—I didn't even think about. And David Fink <laughs> brought it to my attention, of course, before the date. So I'm trying to <laughs> keep that out of my mind, so I'm not <laughs> quoting or anything from Misty. But but it turns out, you know, the releases, the B section is a little different, but the, uh, the A sections are uh, the same, exact same thing as, as Misty. Um, just uh, just an easy, relaxed trio thing, and uh, David and Joey Barron. Joey is incredibly talented, uh, wonderful drummer, and as is David Fink, and bassist. So it was uh, just uh, just a trio song. That's all that that I associate with John because I played with him when we played that song. Sure. <clears throat> One uh, another standout moment for me is there's a there's a bit in uh, configuration where. Uh, Joe Lovano begins playing these kind of ascending scales, and then next you begin playing these ascending scales, yeah. and then next David begins doing the same thing, and uh, it just it has a feeling of of real kind of joy and complete immersion in the moment. And so I wanted to ask you uh, about this band and and the session uh, itself, and kind of what the what the mood was of the of the session. We had done a concert <clears throat> last July, July of two thousand and eight. In uh, a festival in Germany, a Baltica festival, it's in northern Germany. I had brought the trio there, and we did a concert, the trio, and then we did a concert with Joe Lovano, who was the uh, the guest of honor or something, I, I guess, uh, last year. So we did a quartet concert as well. I don't know. It just the, the concert went very well with 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 Joe, and uh, it was very relaxed. It was easy. The audience was great. And seemed, they seemed to like it. So it was a it was a uh, sort of a natural uh, union, let's say. Uh, David and Joey and I had, had recorded uh, a, tri- a trio recording for ECM back in the late 90s. Uh, so we've worked together before, obviously, and David has worked w- with me a lot over the last 25 years or so. He's extraordinarily talented. And Joey is very special, and Joey brings a certain energy because he's always smiling. He's got a very, very positive outlook. And you see him on the bandstand, and he's always got a smile on his face. At least my experience with him is that <laughs> maybe if he didn't like, maybe it's you. <laughs> if he wasn't familiar with, the, or didn't like the music so much, I, mean, I don't, I don't know. But he's always very, you know. And I hear this from everybody that he's just his, his energy is very, very positive and. Uh, so it's, it's it was really uh, it's very easy. David and Joey play extremely well together. They respect each other, and uh, uh, it just was a very 
very positive, happy situation, and uh, so we all get along very well, and uh, the music, I think, reflects that, as it should. I've only had uh, one other chance in my life to ask someone this question, and it was Sonny Rollins, and my hometown is Lenox, Massachusetts, yes. and uh, I know that you were there for the Lenox mm-hmm. School of Jazz, uh, which was my hometown's brief flirtation with being cool. And uh, I just wanted to ask you for any any memories you have of that of that time or, or oh, what the experience was like. I know it was incredible. It was three weeks in August of 1959. <clears throat> I believe it was the first. It might have been the first or the second year that the school went maybe two or three years at the most. And for me, I had just graduated from Harvard in 1959 and was given a scholarship to this school by Schaefer Beer. For what I don't know what their connection of it with it was, but uh, so here I was in, in August of '59. Before I came to New York, I had a chance to meet a lot of people because uh, I was in Boston. Prior to that, I lived in Boston uh, through high school and college. <clears throat> I had met a number of people while I was in Boston who had come through Boston and had a chance to work with them. But here was three weeks where the faculty consisted of the Modern Jazz Quartet. Kenny Dorham was on the faculty, George Russell, rest his soul, uh, just passed away now, and Gunther Schuller was on the faculty, Bill Evans was on the faculty, Herb Pomeroy, another dear dear soul, uh, was on the faculty. And then I was a student, Gary McFarland was a student, Ornette Coleman was a student, Don Cherry was a student, and uh, it was an unbelievable three weeks, it was like a, just a hang, we just didn't sleep very much and was involved with the music and just I th- technically took uh, a lesson with Bill Evans let's say uh, but basically we just talked music and he gave me he had written down some things for me which I still have his the paper that he wrote uh, he was a, a big big help to me when I came to New York he was very helpful in terms of just giving me uh, because it's difficult when you come to New York and you don't know what's going to happen. He was extremely supportive of me, and I'll always remember him for that. In any case, uh, it was just uh, a wonderful three-week period. I'll, I'll always remember that because, of, and I was each each of the faculty members was assigned a group of students, and they had a band. So the band, which I was involved with. Uh, John Lewis and Max Roach was also a teacher. And I was in the band with Ornette and Don Cherry and Larry Ridley, I remember, was the bass player. <clears throat> so I had a chance to play with Ornette for the first time and of course I didn't know what to do. You know, there's really nothing much for a pianist to do when he's soloing. So I just essentially sat on my hands. I thought that was the most respectful thing to do and I didn't want to get in his way. And uh, I'd probably do the same thing today if I if it came to playing with him again. But it was uh, just to hear him, and then after that, of course, he came to New York, and uh, the rest is very well documented. But it's it was a very special time. And then shortly after that, I did come to New York to uh, to see what I could do. And fortunately, started working with Kenny Dorn, who I had met at, at Lenox, and uh, he needed a piano player, so he hired me, and then. In that, several months after that, I made the overture to John and uh, worked with John for those weeks, and then went back to Kenny after after the period with John. So, Lennox was sort of a really a springboard for me in my career, just getting 
to meet all these people up close, talking with them, hanging out. There was no, uh, it was just very relaxed, very, very special time. I'll always, always remember that. You mentioned how much help uh, Bill Evans gave you when you first came to New York, and I have such an image uh, kind of in my mind of New York being a pretty cutthroat place, and everyone's got their piece of turf that they're holding on to, and it sounds like that was very much not the case, uh, at least in the He was very supportive. He knew how difficult it was. Uh, There was never any... Part of the, part of our relationship had nothing to do with it. His his substance abuse and there was never that was never an issue with between us. It was always about being supportive and he said, "Don't worry, you know, it takes time. It's not easy." And I listen. I I came to New York and I started working with Kenny Dorm and then with Coltrane. So I was pretty fortunate as things go. Uh, spent more time with Kenny Dorm than I joined Stan Getz. Uh, so I really had it. Uh, I was fortunate, I would say, as I just said, uh, more so than a lot of people. But um, it was still, it was difficult. And it is, it's a difficult, difficult uh, area to get into. The arts, as as those who are in it know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy road. It's got to be really in your heart of hearts to want to do this. Otherwise, you're probably better off doing something else where you have a more of a steady salary and... I sacrificed having a family and children. Uh, I did it. was a conscious decision on my part. I just knew I could not afford that unless I met somebody who had a lot of money, and that never happened. Or if it did, I, I couldn't. I couldn't live in that dynamic anyway. I mean, I just so I <clears throat> I was single for most single and have been single most of my life, um, just trying to support myself and support the music that I love. So. Uh, I didn't have to go and take other kinds of jobs, particularly. Uh, I did do a fair amount of commercial playing for a while in the uh, mid-80s, but uh, uh, just really tried to work as much as I can in the, in the jazz arena with the trio, and uh, for the most part, and then occasionally you know, with the quartet or something. 
but it's it's been it was it's been and is it's always challenging difficult uh, it, but if it's in your fiber to do it then you uh, then you go for it and uh, do the best you can uh, although this uh, this record uh, primarily focuses on the compositions of John Coltrane or compositions by other people that he played mm-hmm. uh, I really associate you um, with your own compositions and I wonder was there a a point in your career when you decided it was time to write more? Well, it was uh, brought very very much up to uh, loud and clear. In 1969, I was in Paris and uh, did this recording uh, called Childhood is Forever with Aldo Romano, the drummer, and Steve Swallow, bassist. And the music that we recorded was the had not been recorded by me before, but it was in my repertoire. And having recorded that music, that was the end. Everything else that I'd been playing up to that point, I had already recorded. So Swallow, bless his heart, uh, said, you know, you really need to start writing, or writing more. I've written a couple of originals, but basically. He said, what are you going to record the next on the next album? I said, well... You've run out of material. You've got to write. And he really got in my face about it. And so I, uh, I was living in in Sweden at the time, and the woman with whom I was living, Monica Setterland, who was a was a very well known singer and actress in in Scandinavia. She both she and Swallow got on my case big time. So in in 1969, I started uh, writing some original songs. I did about 12 or 13, and just all of it just came out within a period of a couple of months, which is, I mean, I couldn't believe it, but, and I wrote some lyrics to some of the songs, so sort of, uh, and uh, that's really what started the writing in earnest. And then through my relationship with ECM and Manfred, uh, he generally likes original compositions on most of the recordings I've ever done with him. This is the Coltrane, but prior to this, most of the CDs have a, a good, good proportion of originals. So for each album, I'd had to prepare, write new, new songs. And I don't have the discipline that some people have where they can sit and write every day for a couple of hours and then whatever they do, they accept it, they toss it away. I have to have an assignment, I have to have the pressure of that, and I just sit at the piano and stare at a piece of manuscript paper that's blank and then gradually I start putting things down on the paper erase it go on and that's that's how I, I compose but it's very very difficult for me to do it and I do it best when I obviously have a deadline well you're going to record this next month so you've got to have six or eight original compositions so that's that's my modus operandi to do that, that sort of thing <clears throat> but I find it very difficult because I don't have the discipline that other Gary McFarland used to compose uh, every morning he'd sit at the piano between 10, let's say 10 a.m. and noon or 1, 1 o'clock in the afternoon and he'd write whether he, he kept it or not it didn't matter but he had that discipline which I, I admire greatly I just never have had it so uh, I Manfred was, is responsible for me writing a lot of originals subsequent to Swallow's uh, getting in my face in 1969. Are, are there moments when your compositional MO is inspirational as opposed to having to sit in front of a blank staff paper? Not really. No, I don't 
I'm not sleeping in the middle of the night. I wake up, oh, and I have a piece of manuscript paper by the on the de- on the table. But that maybe has happened very infrequently, and I don't remember. I don't write it down, so of course I don't remember it when I wake up in the morning. <clears throat> no, it's um, it really is uh, just grinding it out for me. It really is. Uh, that's that's the way I, I work. And are you generally writing knowing who's going to perform the music? Um. Yes, the uh, most of the stuff I know I'm going to perform. Either it's going to be with, either with a singer, let's say Sheila Jordan that did a couple of recordings with me, uh, or with the saxophone Steve Slagle. <clears throat> but uh, one thing I learned from Gary and and from uh, some people back in the day uh, about writing. Uh, they they said you know think about all the great classical composers they were all great melody writers uh, and I always think of that when I write that can this be is it is it a melody that can be sung or played uh, it's uh, I've always uh, sort of thought about that when I write uh, so it's, it's stuff that I write is not necessarily that out as some other things can be but uh, it has a melody it. Uh, Maybe not the most uh, singable melody, but there's there's some that thread. I always try to. I always remember that, and it's sort of uh, <clears throat> something I, that I thought I I should do, wanted to do, and felt comfortable doing. So, what is it about uh, ECM that's made it a good place, a good environment for you over the years? Well, it's Manfred. He, uh, I think, he's uh, a great producer when he likes the project that he's doing. A couple of projects I've done for him where he has not produced it because he really wasn't that interested uh, for one reason or the other. I'm not going to get into that, but when he l- likes the project, and this this last one, I know he really liked it. Um, uh, he's a great leader in terms of what to do from song to song or taking a song that we've just done, and he said, you know, this is not a live recording, so play it as if it's your studio recording, and maybe you might consider doing an introduction that's rubato. Um, I mean, he just gives pointers along the way, and he's generally right on. And So I've trusted him implicitly. The first time I recorded with him, I mean, he had a piano tuner in the studio the whole time. So in between takes, the tuner would go out and to touch up a note here or there. I never had that experience before, just that kind of attention to the details. Um, in jazz records, you hear a lot of the older records, the piano is so horribly out of tune, and uh, he has the tuner there the whole time. Um, and then he's uh, just a great guide. He's a great guide. I did uh, a solo recording for him that came out on this Life's Backward Glances, this three-CD set. Um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, he, We were mixing trance in Oslo, Norway, just briefly. <clears throat> we recorded trance in New York in 1974, and he flew me to Oslo to mix trance, and he said, if the studio is available the next day, I want you to go in and do a solo recording, just like that. And I said, well, the studio was available. I didn't sleep that night. I had no idea what I was going to do. and wound up doing what I did, and in three hours we did it. But from song to song, he would say, okay, now try something a little more spacey or a little more, uh, have more notes to it or this or that. I don't remember, but 
I remember he was a great guide, and just uh, having him there, I just felt the security. And um, I'd never experienced that with anybody before. I mean, he's he's very opinionated. He knows what he likes, and um, fortunately, he likes me, so uh, that makes it somewhat easier. But he he can be uh, he can be difficult at times too, because he's he's sort of stubborn, and that's fine. I, I can respect that, and uh, I know that he knows what he wants, and he's got a definite sound in mind, and his conception, he's, and his his conception basically for ECM is his, his imprimatur is all over the label. It's been there from day one. The ECM sound and people, you know, it's been emulated over the years. You know, he's been doing this now for almost 40 years, I guess. It is 40 years. <clears throat> and it's, it's his label. He really, uh, his stamp is all over it on everything. You just mentioned uh, Life's Backward Glances, which is also the title now of a, a three-CD box set that ECM just put out, which collects uh, three records, two uh, quartet records, and a solo album. And I, I wonder, I have kind of a two-part question. Part A is, do you listen to those records now? And B, if you do, what do you hear when you listen to them? Well, <clears throat> I listen to... Uh, no, I don't. Generally, I don't listen to anything that I've done. It's sort of like children who have left... the nest as it were <clears throat> send them out on their way but I did listen to these when they sent them to me because I wanted to hear what the recorded quality was they had to do some remixing and stuff like that <clears throat> and I was surprised that uh, that I liked the music as much as I did I'm extremely critical and not to say that I was nuts over it but uh, it seems uh, it seems that it's held up fairly well over the years, in my view. Um, having said that, there are many things I would do differently, but that was then, that was 35 years ago or whenever. <clears throat> so, uh, but generally I don't listen. I don't listen. I just wanted to hear. I he heard them all once to see what the sound was like, as I said, and, uh, and how I would, re would react, because I hadn't heard them in probably most of the, all these years that have passed in between the time of recording 
and uh, now. So, uh, but I was surprised, yes. Steve Slegel uh, does such a great job on those records, and he seems mm-hmm. kind of criminally underappreciated to me. He's such a, a wonderful player. Can you talk a little bit about Steve? He's very, very talented. Uh, he's, I don't know, he's been around New York all these years. Uh, he still plays. Uh, we talk not very frequently, but um, uh, he's just a very, very talented musician and uh, who probably should have more exposure than he does, uh, more recognition. But, but I hear that about me all my life, so it's, you know, I, I can relate to that. And you just you do the best you can, and if you hang in there long enough, I guess, so you, just longevity, you sort of... You sort of get the uh, some some uh, feedback of appreciation. I get emails all the time from people in different parts of the world, and it's, it's nice. It's uh, the influence I've had, or how much they've enjoyed the music, and that that really makes it worthwhile. It's uh, <clears throat> very special, very special, and uh, after all, that's what it's all about. I mean, you're, you're playing, and hopefully, you can reach reach people. Especially emotionally, that's that's for me. That's the bottom line. It's not about the uh, how clever you can reharmonize a song or how fast you can play. It's it's about emotional reaching people emotionally. And uh, <clears throat> if I'm able to do that, make them laugh, make them cry, that then then I'm doing something right. And that's and that's I've gotten a lot of compliments uh, in recent years about that and, and that really makes me feel very very good and uh, so I just keep trying and keep working at it and, and um, so it's a work in progress it always is it's I'm ne- never satisfied and never never trying to stand still or become a parody of myself I just uh, just try to play each job as if it's in a sense the first job of course it's not, but <clears throat> just to come with it as, as fresh as fresh an outlook as possible and uh, and take chances, taking risks that's uh, that's a big part of the whole experience of improvisation. Uh, don't be playing stuff that you've played before necessarily just uh, try to just expand the parameters as much as possible. but for the sake of just to be true to yourself, not for the sake of just doing something different, but it, sh- it should all be generic and it should be uh, coming from you in all sincerity. There should be no uh, no uh, excess in terms of just playing for the sake of <clears throat> reaching people in terms of, oh my goodness, how fast that was. or how It's not about that. It's about reaching, as I said, the emotional level of people, and that's, and that's great if I'm able to do that. You've described a, a very kind of monastic <clears throat> approach to your craft. Uh, has, it, has it been fun? Has it been worth it? In the, in the... <sighs> that's hard to say. If, I mean, it's... <clears throat> if, I, if I could go back... Uh, there are certain aspects of things that I did many, many years ago that I would would change, but uh, uh, I've always been true to myself. I've never, quote unquote, sold out. In terms, I had opportunities when I was younger. <clears throat> Friends of mine went to California, for example, as I could have done. Got into film writing for films and doing a lot of studio work, and they were all 
living in these great houses with the swimming pools and just the lifestyle was was wonderful and I was sorely tempted but um, something inside me I just said no I've got to just really I, I have to be able to live with myself <clears throat> so I stuck to what I was trying to do and uh, it was uh, certainly a more difficult road to hoe as they, as they say but uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way and I probably wouldn't do it if I could do it again. I would I would do it exactly the same way. Um, Personality-wise, I was kind of uh, <clears throat> perhaps surly back in the day, years and years ago. I, I really believed what I wanted to do, and I wasn't going to listen to anybody else. And tur I turned people off by that. But you know, you get older, you learn, you uh, you uh, suffer some uh, losses in your life. Some, uh, people passing around you uh, who are very close to you and you mellow and uh, that's you know at, at my age now I'm just <clears throat> I, I feel very content with myself as a person I try to keep growing and learning and listening and doing things I don't want to sit still and vegetate certainly as long as I my faculties are in order I'm, I'm just gonna keep playing and composing and do whatever I can do to such a time when I can't do it, and then then I'm out of here. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no uh, vegetating. I think I think I just that's it. Here we are back in 2019 again. If you dig what you just heard, become a member for 5 or 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, the great Steve Kuhn. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com, who have been providing the theme music since the very first episode. Thanks to Dave Rabel for designing the logo. You can follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at JazzSesh and on Instagram at The Jazz Session. One cool reason to follow is that I post a clip from the archives on both those accounts each weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Take a second right now, if you would, to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Jazz Session. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners by helping the show move up the rankings in its category, making it more likely that people will see it. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and a whole lot more, you can subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Many people have been doing that recently, for which I'm grateful. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.